Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? Hope everybody's feeling fantastic, doing well. As we move along here in the month of November, getting closer to the holiday season, plenty of sports to get into, and you've come to the right place to listen to it all here on the latest edition of the J Reels Podcast. This is your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 163 episodes, I welcome you guys back. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast among the many others that are out there, whether you listen to it on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, even Amazon Music. So if you haven't done so already, I would greatly appreciate you do so at your earliest convenience. It is a Monday, November the 9th in the year of our Lord 2020. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect here on this podcast is as follows. We have a new number one in college football. Thanks to the Fighting Irish upsetting the Clemson Tigers in that double overtime thriller at South Bend on Saturday night. We'll get into that game as well as some of the other big matchups over the weekend. The Pac-12 is now ushered into the college football equation. A lot to get into when it comes to the college circuit, so we'll touch on that later on. We'll also get into a little bit of baseball. I understand I've been on this theme with Steve Cohen the last few weeks, and rightfully so. They've pretty much been in the news since the end of the baseball season, and now that the owner, Steve Cohen, has cleaned house, the whole front office is gone. What to expect now for a GM and a manager? I have a few thoughts there. The NBA, in all likelihood, will start their season on December the 22nd. What does that mean for the upcoming 2021 season? Because who knows, with 72 games that's been proposed, will they be able to squeeze it all in in time for the Olympics? Also, the Christmas Day schedule, it's not out yet, but what is that going to look like considering they're going up against the NFL as there is a game on Christmas Day in the middle of the day between the Vikings and Saints? Also, the Masters, that's right. People aren't thinking about golf right about now, unless you're the diehard fan. But the guy who's taken over golf in 2020, Bryson DeChambeau, has one last mountain to climb, and I'm sure he's going to be all the rage when it comes to Augusta in the coming days as the tournament will start there on Thursday. We'll get into all that, especially the weather, which looks like it's going to be an enormous factor going into that weekend as there's a lot of rain on the radar for the tournament down there in Georgia. I also have a couple of thoughts on the election at the back end of this podcast, as well as my hero and zero of the week. But the NFL is now officially at the halfway point of the year. Sadly, to close out the week, we have a barn burner out in MetLife tonight between the New England Patriots and New York Jets. So if there's a book that you've been looking to read or a movie that you've put on hold and you've been dying to watch, tonight is the night to do so. Because me, myself, I may tune in from time to time because there's nothing else to watch as far as sports are concerned, as we all know. But that is one game that I'm sure ESPN and the NFL are not looking forward to and just hoping to get it over with. And maybe for them, it'll be a close game. But who knows? 
because the Jets are certainly looking for their first win and to get themselves off the schneid as far as their season is concerned. And the Patriots, they've lost four in a row. We all know that they've been out to sea pretty much for the season. But the theme here in these first nine weeks and the main one being COVID, because as we've seen time and time again, and I'm not going to talk about the other sports and what they've been through because we've been down that road a zillion times. But with all these cases popping up in various cities with these various teams, so whether you are the Bears, whether you are the Texans, even the Ravens, Marlon Humphreys we've seen, San Francisco has been decimated not only by injuries but with COVID with Kendrick Bourne, the wide receiver, even Green Bay. Look at John Elway in Denver. He even came down with it as well. Baker Mayfield is the latest known star or big-time player in the league. Who's come down with COVID or at least is part of the COVID-19 protocol. So no matter how much the game suffers, and that may be a little bit of a strong word, but the NFL right now, just like the other sports, they're going to plow right through to the very, and hopefully for them, not bitter end. Because it doesn't matter who's out, how many players are out. Granted that if there are teams that have in upwards of double digits, so if you're getting up to the 7, 8, 9, 10 and above, that's where it become a problem when you look at the Tennessee Titans a few weeks ago. Because it doesn't matter if you're the Las Vegas Raiders and your whole offensive lineman, your five guys are going to be out, or some of these other teams that have had to deal with this and know that it doesn't matter whether it's your main guy and Cam Newton as you saw a few weeks ago in New England, or if it's the 53rd man on the roster, the NFL... They're not going to make any restrictions or any concessions as to how the rest of this year is going to go because as we've seen, especially in the last couple of weeks, it doesn't matter. The second that test comes in, that person's going to be in quarantine. And if you have to put me at quarterback or me at linebacker or at safety, punter, kicker, it doesn't matter. The NFL, there are no apologies. They're going to get in these games no matter what, by hook, by crook, no Ifs, ands, buts, and maybes about it. And that's what we've pretty much seen here, especially in the last few weeks, because as teams have had to deal with this, and you've seen the fines that have been handed down to whether you're John Gruden in Las Vegas or even Mike Tomlin in Pittsburgh, they're going to make sure that everybody is going to be masked up on the sidelines, especially during these games. And as we all know, throughout the course of a week, in these facilities, in the conference rooms, locker rooms, etc. Because the NFL is not going to fall victim to any extended period of time where they're going to have to either suspend a week or suspend certain games or tack them on at the end of the season or have to add a week 18. Uh Uh-uh, they do not want to do that. And here we are throughout the course of not only just this football season, but this whole year, as we still have not gotten out of this first wave of coronavirus and it looks like there's not going to be a remedy or any type of treatment in the near future with the weather getting colder and the cases going up by the day in record form here in this country the NFL is still going to thumb their nose and say we're going to keep on marching through so as we get deeper into November and into December and obviously a calendar year in 2021 where the NFL will be front and center with this postseason's There is no way that they're going to even hold their breath and wonder or even keep their fingers crossed to think that this season is going to be either postponed, suspended, have to be pushed 
a few weeks ahead, they are not going to do that. And that's what we've seen here, not only just in the last few weeks, but even more so in the past week for all those cities and those teams that were affected and even some of the players, GMs, presidents of teams, doesn't matter. So who knows, by week's end, we'll be up to about 150, 200,000 people, new cases in the U.S., and it could be half of the NFL teams, two-thirds of it, or even just a quarter of it. Doesn't matter, because the NFL... As we've said time and time again, they are the shield. They are impenetrable. And as far as this virus is concerned, there's no stopping them. And we understood in the other sports that was the case, be it that they had bubbles in both the NBA and NHL and to a certain extent in baseball when it came to the postseason. But the NFL is just not going to care. And we've seen how this has also affected college football with their top player in Trevor Lawrence and Clemson, which we'll get to later on. But that's pretty much been the theme when I look at the first half and we could talk about there's still one undefeated team in Pittsburgh and a winless team with the Jets. But right now, when you look at the first half of this year, it's how the NFL has been dealing with COVID and how they're going to look at it and try to sprint right to the very end without being affected by the virus, despite the fact that the cases are going up exponentially by the day. And I don't want to hear from people, certain circles about hoaxes or conspiracy theories or come on, Jay Reels, nobody's going to die from it. So we get all that, okay? I'm not going to dissect every little detail or the minutia on what's right, what's wrong, uh, what they should do, what they shouldn't do. Of course, the NFL is going to do what they would normally do, whether it's a virus, whether it's a situation with Mother Nature, it doesn't matter. The bottom line is they're going to get through this By hook or by crook, as I've said. Let's get on with it. Week 9 in the NFL, winners and losers before we go through the schedule and everything that's happened in the league yesterday. My winner, and I only have one, is the Miami Dolphins. And Tua Tagovailoa's second NFL start and first one on the road, for him to put up the numbers that he did, unlike his first start against the Rams, to the tune of 20 for 28, 248 yards, two touchdowns, A big road win for them as they were mano a mano with the Arizona Cardinals and the performance of what Kyler Murray did was even more impressive. But the Dolphins, who as we've seen over the course of the last year and a half, trying to build this team back to respectability, and they've done so pretty much with the snap of a finger. I believe last year, what did they start? 0-8? And pretty much since then, I believe they're 10-7. and So not only have they turned their season around when you look back at this time last year, But with Brian Flores, the coach of the team, and now with their quarterback in tow, the future is looking very bright. Now, granted, it's been two games, can't jump for joy, can't go too crazy, you understand that. But knowing that the Dolphins, who if they would have went to Arizona and lost this game, let's say 34-31, you'd say, hey, they're still on the come up, they're on the rise, they're going to be a team to be reckoned with down the road. But right now, for them to win a game like that against a formidable opponent, We know Arizona is pretty much almost in that same boat as Miami as they're looking to turn their franchises around. They're looking to be that team that hopefully in the next year or so could take that leap to championship contending possibilities. But right now with the Dolphins and with the bold move of putting in Tua to replace Ryan Fitzpatrick, it's all coming up roses there in South Florida as they continue to 
creep up not only the AFC East, but the AFC in general. So you got to give them a lot of credit for what they've done here, and especially with that win out in the desert yesterday. Now to my losers of the week, the first one, and how could you not? Where were the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last night? Now, if they would have lost the game to the Saints at home, close, or let's say even if they had gotten out to a fast start, the Saints, as we saw last night, but the Buccaneers came fighting back, inch closer, but ran out of gas, ran out of time, and weren't able to win the game, then fine. But to put up that type of performance, in their first nine drives, they had four three and outs, an interception, turnover on downs, an interception, a turnover on downs, and an interception. That was not a bad performance. That was not an awful performance. That was as pathetic and putrid as you could possibly have for the whole world to see. Sunday night, NBC, Tom Brady, we get the Buccaneers have been rejuvenated, but to have that type of a performance last night against a division rival, it doesn't get any worse than that. And we could go through the numbers with Brady, we could go through their offensive output through the first three plus quarters. Yeah, they kicked the field goal just to avoid a shutout there late in the fourth quarter. But for them to be non-competitive in the game, it, it makes you think that they almost have to start from scratch all over again. And now they're putting themselves in a big hole in the NFC, which I'll get into a little bit later on, but that was my first loser of the week. And my second loser, where last week they were a winner, but because they were at home and going up against a very strong opponent in the Baltimore Ravens, but the Indianapolis Colts showed you that they are far from contenders and they are more pretenders. And I understand it was a controversial play in the game, the interception there on the sideline, which was originally called incomplete, but the throw from Rivers where Marcus Peters caught the ball and did go back three steps, so he did have possession, but it was just one of those things that you rarely see, if ever see, on a football field, because usually when a play in regular speed happens like that, you think automatically it's an incomplete. But between that play and then the fumble later on, Jonathan Taylor, where Chuck Clark takes it back to the house, Ravens seem like they get those type of plays against teams like that, whether it's a punt return or a fumble return, a pick six, things of that nature. But the Colts just stung up the joint yesterday and even had a 7-0 lead and led 10-7 at halftime, but did not even show up for the second half. So it just makes me think that the Colts are good enough to be in the mix, but not good enough to take the next step. That's how I look at the Colts here. And who knows what's going to happen moving forward. I said it last week. They were 5-2 and two at this time last year with Jacoby Brissett. And after the win that they had last week in Detroit. And I understand it was the Lions. No big whoop. But that's a team. And that's a game that you have to win if you want to go places. And the way that they beat the Lions in dominating fashion. You would think that maybe that would carry over to this week. Not the case as they fall 24-10 to 10 to the Ravens. And as we looked through the league yesterday, I'm not going to go crazy on every game. I'm not going to talk about Giants and Washington. Not going to do it. Jacksonville, Houston. I know the backup quarterback came in there and did a very fine job, but what's to discuss there? I'm not going to get into a couple of those games where, to me, they're meaningless. I know the Raiders won at the Chargers yesterday, and the Chargers lose another brutal game at the very end. As a matter of fact, the last play of the game where it looked like it was a touchdown catch, which would have propelled them to a victory, but the ball was juggled, it was incomplete, and the Chargers lose another heartbreaker. So games like that, I'm not going to dissect. Same for Green Bay and San Francisco, the Thursday night game. 
where Green Bay was off and running 21-0 and they cruised to a 34-17 victory. We know the Niners are just banged up. Nick Mullins did not play well. We know Garoppolo, who knows if he's going to come back this year. You know, the Denver Atlantis of the world, am I going to get into that? No. Detroit, Minnesota, all right, I understand Dalvin Cook is playing as if he's from another planet. 206 yards on the ground. Minnesota trying to get back a little respectability there. I'm not going to get into those type of games. I'm going to get into the games that are meaningful and that we can look at here. And we'll start with the game in Buffalo between the Seahawks and Buffalo Bills. Now, the Seahawks had to come east. We know that the Seahawks defense is not very good. We've talked about it time and time again, not to be confused with the Legion of Boom defenses of those Super Bowl teams going back five, six years. But the one thing when you look at Buffalo, it's weird. They're the type of team that, especially when they're at home, they fly high, they run around, they're able to get big yardage. You look at the game against the Rams earlier this year. All right, are you going to talk about what happened with the week one game against the Jets? They are the Jets, but it was week one. We didn't know the Jets were going to be this awful. Also, you can look at the game in Miami where they were down in the fourth quarter and they came back and won and ended up winning in double digits. And Buffalo is that type of team that they're the team that teases you to the point where, wow, this could be a top team in the AFC. Will they be ranked with Kansas City, Pittsburgh, even Baltimore? Maybe not. But when you look at their record and you look at some of the performances that they've had throughout the course of the year, and in particular yesterday, where Josh Allen was 31 of 38 for 415 yards and three touchdowns, and their defense, which hasn't been as advertised as it was last year, but when you look at that type of performance, and especially with them playing at home, they almost look like a team that can't be beat. But it's those games on the road. It's those games where you know that you're going to need a big play, not only from your defense, but from your quarterback. And Josh Allen has showed glimpses of that, but we need to see that in a big spot. Now you could say Seattle, Jay Reels, come on, they're a good team. They're a Super Bowl contending team, absolutely. But I'm not sold on that defense. And we know that there are not a lot of great defenses in football right now. It's not as if we could look and say, oh yeah, this one is the top defense, that. Even my Steelers, which I've said time and time again, they're a good defense, they're a bend but don't break defense, but they are not a great defense. So, And they're going to face each other down the road in a few weeks. So that's going to be a game to certainly highlight and discuss when that time comes. But the Bills, with a lot of resilience and a lot of fortitude, are now 7-2 and two in an AFC where even with the Dolphins trying to creep up and they still have a game left between Miami and Buffalo at the very end of the year, you wonder if they're going to continue to put the pedal to the metal if you're the Buffalo Bills and have these games that they've shown at home, whether it was last night or some of the games I mentioned earlier, or when they go on the road, they're going to be that type of team where it seems like they can't move the ball five feet. So with the Bills, although very impressed, you got to give them credit, but do you trust them in a big spot? And as for Seattle, I'm not going to just talk about the West to East. That's always seems to be a factor in the NFL when these teams go from coast to coast. But their defense is not good. I don't care how many touchdowns Russell Wilson could throw. I don't care how much they could throw the ball to DK Metcalf or to Tyler Lockett or get a lot of production from the offensive side of the ball. You got to make stops. And as we saw in that game yesterday, they weren't able to get stops in the fourth quarter when they needed it. And the Seahawks, they're going to wonder if the missing piece to that team was somebody on defense, and not that I'm in love with them, but they had a guy in Jadavian Clowney who can wreck a game, although he's to me he's overrated. 
But if they somehow, some way would have been able to keep him, who knows? At least it would have been a little bit more respectable from a defensive side of the ball to be able to get to the quarterback, to be able to put some pressure. And you're not seeing that from Seattle right now. So just something to keep in mind when we look at that NFC, and we'll break it down a little bit later on, as to, of course, them being a Super Bowl contender, but you just got to wonder, with that type of defense, will they be able to go far if they don't have, A, the top spot in the NFC, or at least get to have home field in that first or second round? Because this year, as we know, you're going to have three wildcard teams. You're going to have two versus seven, three versus six, four versus five. So even with the second seed in that conference, it doesn't mean that you're going to have a straight road to the Super Bowl in your backyard. Kansas City beating Carolina. What else is new? Patrick Mahomes, the fastest to 100 touchdown passes, who beats Dan Marino. Carolina, who played tough, actually had a lead early 14-6, to but too much Mahomes. I mean, what could you say? The guy is just a magician with the ball and what he does. He even had one play where he was going in motion. Could you believe that? He was going in motion, took the snap, Rolled out to his right and do a touchdown pass. I mean, that's Mahomes in a nutshell. He's been phenomenal. And chances are, with all the Russell Wilson backers and him getting the MVP, Patrick Mahomes is saying, yeah, he may get the MVP, but I'm the best guy in the league. And right now, it's looking like there's not even a... He's on his own island and everybody else is just swimming around it. So the Chiefs are now 8-1 there in the AFC. Tennessee gets back in the win column after losing two in a row. They pretty much had the game in control. I know the Bears came back late and tried to make it a game, but they fall a touchdown short. And as I've said before, I am not in love with the Bears. I don't think they're going to go far. Their offense is very inconsistent. Foles, he's a guy that he's the good mop-up relief pitcher who could come in and do the job. But if you're going to expect him to do it over and over and over again, he's just not that guy. So whether it's just performance or even just his health, because we know that he's made of plastic at times, But the Bears are now hanging by a thread there in the NFC. And the NFC is wide open, as I said, going back to the preview early on. But again, we'll look at the conferences in a little bit where I find the NFC fascinating in comparison to the AFC. I know we touched on Indianapolis a little bit there with the losers segment, but give credit to Baltimore for bouncing back after losing to Pittsburgh the week before. And another Dan Marino record went by the wayside yesterday as Lamar Jackson in his first 30 games, now 25-5, and five, who broke the record of Dan Marino. So two of Dan Marino's records went on the same day yesterday. Now, Baltimore wasn't really impressive in the game from an offensive standpoint. Lamar Jackson did rush for a touchdown. I believe they only had 220-some-odd or 240 yards total offense on the ground. I don't know if that's more of indictment on the Colts defense, but the Ravens did get the win. Not overly impressive, but to me, that was more the Colts than it was the Ravens. Of course, we touched on Tampa Bay and how pathetic they were last night, which NBC had to be dying just to think that leading up to that game, and that was a game where I'm sure a lot of people were looking at to see Tampa getting a little bit of revenge from the loss in week one at the Superdome, but that was not a game. That was one, you talk about turning your sets off after the first quarter. That was as bad as you could possibly get. Those would be the highlights of your Sunday. And then, of course, you had the Steels and Cowboys, which was a game that I knew going in was not going to be easy. And let me start off by saying this as I read all this stuff on social media, where everybody thought that the game yesterday was a trap game. People, do you know what the definition of a trap game is in the NFL? Well, let me 
break it down for you guys. A trap game in the NFL would be equivalent to, all right, let's say the Steelers were playing Dallas yesterday, but they were facing Baltimore next week. Or they were facing Buffalo next week. Or they were facing Kansas City the following week. So where the trap game falls in is that you have a much lesser and inferior opponent that you're going to take lightly because you're looking ahead to the following week to play against those said teams. Who do the Steelers play next week? The Cincinnati Bengals. And now the Bengals are a young team, up and coming. I'm sure it's going to be a very competitive and spirited division matchup. The game's in Pittsburgh. But even still, you cannot underestimate these games, especially with teams in your own division. But when people call this a trap game, they forget to think that it's only a trap game depending on the opponent on the other side. And that opponent is usually one that is equivalent or if not better than the Pittsburgh Steelers. So let's get that out of the way before everybody started screaming trap game. That's why the Steelers played so awful yesterday. So that's number one. Number two is that was an ugly game. The Steelers, for whatever the reason, they always start off slow in these games. They can never seem to get their bearings until it seems like the second half. And they cannot continue to live like this because it eventually is going to bite them in the rear end. And that's all there is to it. And for Pittsburgh to pull out another game in the fire does show the type of mental toughness, the testicular fortitude and the heart that the team has. Even with the mixture of mostly veterans and some of the young guys, especially on the offensive side of the ball, that are showing and proving how to play on a stage like this, whether it's against the Tennessee Titans, the Baltimore Ravens, or in yesterday's case, the Dallas Cowboys. But the game yesterday, I tell you, Mike Tomlin had one bad decision, but he also had one very good decision in the game. And everything in between, especially when it comes to the special teams, was an out-and-out disaster. His first bad move was in the first half, down 3 nothing, where they had a second and three, I believe at the Cowboy, I want to say 32-yard line. And what does he do? He runs a play to McFarland. They get a couple yards, third and one. Third and one, inch shotgun, they run an inside handoff. McFarland, he gets stopped. On fourth and one, same formation, this time Benny Snell gets stopped. Where was James Conner? I didn't understand that at all. I can understand that maybe you want to run three plays into the pile, into the line, fine. But what I don't understand is why wasn't James Conner there? And listen, I'm not making James Conner out to be Jerome Bettis. But he's a guy that could try to get that extra yard who's been in those situations in the past and that could try to just turn those legs or just pound right through that line to get the first down. I mean, Snell and McFarlane, these are young guys who I understand are learning on the fly and who knows, maybe for down the road, this will be an opportunity for them. But try to get the first down by all means necessary. And he didn't do that there. Now, I'll get to his better move later on in the game. The special teams was just beyond out of whack. And the crazy thing is, is that the one good thing that happened in the special teams was that Chris Boswell hit a 59-yard field goal right before the half. But that wasn't only because there was a false start where it was originally a 54-yard field goal where they had to push it back. And with that 54-yard field goal, he missed it the first time around. So let's put that out there. You also had the lateral that they had across the field to C.J. Goodwin, which set up their field goal, 73 yards, and it was a flag blocking the back. So they had to take it back, but that led to a field goal. Then later on, after getting the touchdown at 1915, 
to Juju Smith-Schuster. They get the kickoff where they had a personal foul where Juju, I looked like he was trying to get to the star to commemorate T.O. with uh, him at the star there back in 2000. So they had to kick from the 50 where they allowed a big return there by Rico Dowdle. So the Steelers have pretty much trailed the whole game. I mentioned the touchdown 19-15. And I will say this, Mike McCarthy gave the Steelers a tremendous break because on that fourth and inches where they kicked the field goal to make it 19-9, they were running the ball down the Steelers' throat, especially with Tony Pollard. They were able to get chunks at a time. And even though the numbers for Ezekiel Elliott were paltry, 18 for 51 for his standards. And yeah, he was pretty much stuffed for most of the game. But he had moments where he was able to get yards. And I mentioned Pollard as well. Even Garrett Gilbert, the quarterback who came in, who did a magnificent job for except one play, which we'll get to. But why for fourth and inches, why didn't they go for it there? They were up 16-9. They would have got stopped there. All right. That would have been a great play by the Steelers defense if that was the case, but they were gouging the Steelers defense on the ground. And they rushed for 145 yards in the game. I was shocked. I couldn't believe it that they actually kicked the field goal there and they did it 19-9. Then on the ensuing drive, that's when the Steelers got the ball. They were able to punch it in the end zone to Juju Smith-Schuster into the fourth quarter and they weren't able to kick an extra point. And that was another thing I forgot to mention about the special teams. They missed two extra points on the day as their special teams was probably the worst special teams game the Steelers I think I've ever seen. And I've watched almost every Steelers game dating back to 1993. So now at 19-15, so the short kickoff, as I mentioned before, they took it back 64 yards. Now the Cowboy offense is in the red zone and the one bad play that Garrett Gilbert made was as he was getting hit, he threw the ball up for grabs and Minka Fitzpatrick intercepted it. Now, mind you, I know there was a hold there on Joe Hayden with Amari Cooper. The refs did not pick that up. That was a bad call by the officials on the field. They should have called that a hold. I don't know what they were seeing on that play because Minka pretty much was within feet of that infraction. And Minka was able to intercept it and the Steelers got the ball. Now that drive led them to a field goal to make it 19-18. And then the Steelers get the ball back with about four minutes to go, and to me, by far the biggest play of the game. At third and 10, where Ben throws a pass in the seam to Chase Claypool, is incomplete, but Jalen Smith, who brushes the helmet of Ben Roethlisberger, gets called for a roughing the passer, which was a killer penalty. Anytime you get a third and 10 roughing the passer, or a third and whatever, but that one was just brutal. Who knows how the game turns out at that point. A couple plays later, Deontay Johnson down the sideline. Eric Ebron hurls into the end zone. They get the touchdown. And then the Steelers had to get two big defensive stops on the first go around where they were able to culminate that with a sack for Cameron Hayward and TJ Watt. Now, the Steelers had the ball deep in Cowboy territory. And this was the other thing that I thought Tom did a very smart and wise decision. Now, it was frustrating that the Steelers weren't able to get the first down there. I know it was a third and four where Claypool had that little jet sweep, got tripped up by Leighton Vander Esch where he was stopped short of the first down marker. And then on fourth and one, that's when they run James Conner. But it looked like they were pulling, and while doing so, they had the linebacker come in, make the play, loss of four. That was frustrating. I didn't like that play call. I know you're going to run the ball. You're not going to pass there because the Cowboys have no more timeouts. You're going to have to run out the clock there. Understandably so. But the 
argument is that a lot of Steeler fans, this is to me first guess, a lot of the Steeler fans thought, kick the field goal there, make it up by eight, you'll have Garrett go down the field to have to get a touchdown on a two-point conversion. Here's why I thought that was a smart play. I just finished talking about the special teams and how awful they were. The two missed extra points, the blocked field goal, the field goal that he missed prior to the 59-yarder, their offensive line and their special team setup was a sieve. Cowboys were just snaking through left and right, and you cannot afford to have a field goal there blocked or a field goal attempt there blocked and have it taken back to the house. I don't care what anybody says. And I know weeks ago I argued Mike Zimmer in that Sunday night Minnesota-Seattle game where they were up by five, he could have kicked the field goal, they went for it, got stopped, and then back the other way was Russell Wilson going ahead for the winning score. But this is a totally different scenario. If you weren't watching that game and weren't paying attention, I would have been scared to line up for a field goal there on fourth and one. If it was fourth and three, fourth and four, who knows, maybe would you go for a field goal? I think you'd still try to run the ball. Because I did not trust that special teams, especially the field goal unit, at all. Because I wouldn't have been surprised if they would have blocked the ball and it would have been taken back to the house or 30, 40, 50 yards, whatever it may be. And then now you have the Steelers have to make another defensive stop. Garrett made that beautiful throw on the sideline there. Uh, was caught by CeeDee Lamb tiptoeing the sideline. So now it came down to the final play for the second week in a row where Minka Fitzpatrick had to break up a pass in the end zone or near the end zone to ice the game. And the Steelers... Boy, they probably ran to the locker room and then ran onto the bus and to the airport because that was a game. Let's face it, they were lucky to win. The Cowboys were in control of that game. The Steelers were wildly inconsistent on offense. Now, they turned it on when they had to. And kudos to Ben. They got a couple of breaks there with the officials. I'll admit, even in the drive where they made it 19-18 on the field goal, they had two personal fouls go their way. As I've said time and time again, you take these wins and you never throw them away. That was a huge victory. And who would have thought that during this three-game stretch, when I talked about it weeks ago, how I would have taken easily Tennessee and Baltimore and lose to Dallas. Now, yesterday would have been a bad loss because of Garrett Gilbert's odyssey as an NFL player and him getting a shot to actually win the game on the game's final play. And honestly, I could care less if it was a loss to the Cowboys. I understand the history between the Cowboys and Steelers. I get that there's always going to be that little bit in my heart that uh, just doesn't like the Cowboys. But I've outgrown that. To me, my sports hatred, especially the NFL, goes in different directions. And directions where it's much more meaningful, a la Baltimore. So yesterday, although, yeah, that loss would have stung, it would have hurt, we're not going to be undefeated the whole year, people. We're going to lose at some point. And I don't want the Steelers to go 16-0, to be honest with you. But even with that being said, that would have been a bad loss. Not only because of the opponent and because they've been decimated with injuries, but they just didn't play well. And they made a few plays and they did what they had to do and that's how champion teams are built when they win games like that. And even though there were a bunch of Steeler fans in the building and it wasn't fully packed due to COVID, et cetera, et cetera, but how you look at that is another notch in the belt of the 2020 Pittsburgh Steelers when it comes to winning a game knowing how to win that game. And you just hope that sets them up for the second half of the season and into a postseason that they could go deep and hopefully get to a Super Bowl and win it. Because not every game you could win 
you need to win these games that are just downright ugly. And the Steelers have a penchant and a habit for winning these type of games. Now, it's not going to last forever because they need to have a ground game. Their ground game is awful. It's very inconsistent. I'm not trying to say they got to rush for 130, 40, 50 yards a game, but they had 46 yards on the ground yesterday. And then look at the week before in Baltimore. They've done nothing on the ground. Ben can't win these games on his own. We may want to think that or believe it. And right, we see it in front of our eyes that he's done it time and time again, but it's not going to happen every week. So again, I'm not trying to hit, I'm not sitting here complaining about it. I'm just being real. So with that said, I'll get off the Steelers. They got Cincinnati next week. Now let's look ahead to week 10 in the NFL. First off, your buys are Atlanta, Dallas, Kansas City, and the Jets. And your Thursday night game is actually a good one. It would have been a lot better if Indy would have won yesterday, but they are now 5-3, and three, Tennessee 6-2. and two. Indianapolis at Tennessee, which will definitely be big. Now this game will go a long way as far as who will win the division because if Tennessee does win, they'll in essence have a two and a half game lead in the division and they still have one more to play. Where if Indy wins, they'll be tied for first, but they'll have the tiebreaker. So maybe not the most sexiest matchup or the one that's gonna, ooh, I gotta run to the set at 820 come Thursday night. But at least you have an intriguing matchup of two teams that are looking to at least get a share or a stranglehold of the AFC South. But the rest of the schedule, oh goodness. It seems week after week, and even though yesterday you had some games that were compelling, especially the four o'clock games, whether it was the Vegas and Chargers, obviously Pittsburgh, Dallas, Miami, Arizona. And you have a ton of four o'clock games this week. You actually have six of them. I don't know why that's the case, but you do have a lot of four o'clock games to chew on this coming Sunday. But your schedule is looking rather bleak. Houston at Cleveland, Washington at Detroit, Jacksonville at Green Bay, Philadelphia at the New York Giants, Tampa, Carolina, Denver at the Vegas Raiders, Chargers at Dolphins, which that could be good from this perspective. You got Tua going up against Herbert. So you have both quarterbacks that were drafted number five and number six overall going at it head to head. That's a game that, yes, may not be the first one that you're going to circle come Sunday, but because of that matchup alone, You'll definitely want to tune in to see how that shakes down. Buffalo, Arizona is probably your highlight game of the day. Seattle at LA, the Rams. eh. San Francisco at New Orleans, not as good as it was maybe going back to week one. Cincy, Pittsburgh, your Sunday night game is Baltimore at New England. Even if New England wins tonight, and I understand NBC is going to try to build it up to some sort of matchup between Belichick against Lamar Jackson, but... I do not expect much out of that. And then your Monday night game is Minnesota at Chicago, where Minnesota is now starting to build with a couple of wins under their belt in the division on the road in Green Bay last week and then yesterday at home against Detroit. But is that going to be a game where you're going to want to drop everything and turn on ESPN? Highly unlikely. And speaking of Belichick real quick, I do want to mention him because early in the week he made a comment And surprisingly, because as we all know, Belichick does not give you anything when it comes to his interviews, his press conferences, etc. But for him to admit that the reason why the Patriots are where they are this year at 2-5 and is because they had to sell out over the last few years with their salary cap to win those Super Bowls. So now they're feeling the effect of it to the tune where, oh, we can only pay Cam Newton a million dollars as far as the base salary is concerned. We can't do this. We can't do that. 
You know what, Bill? I got mad respect for you. You're an all-time great, if not up there number one. I know it's tough to overtake Lombardi because of who he is. I'm not trying to say you can't put Lombardi and Belichick in the same sentence by any stretch. But as we all know, the Super Bowl trophy is named after the legendary Packer coach. But for Belichick to now break out the crocodile tears to say, well, this is what I have. This is what I'm left. I can't procure this type of town. I can't do this. I can't do that. Nobody wants to hear that after the fact, even though it may be true, and he did say it's not an excuse, it's the truth, but nobody wants to hear that. Because let's just say if they were 4-4 four and four or 4-3, four and three, would he have come out and made that comment? Or let's just say, for instance, they beat the Jets tonight, which is a very good chance that they will. And then they have the game in their building next week against Baltimore. Let's say they beat them. So now they're 4-5. and five. So are we going to attribute that to a poor salary cap as to why they couldn't procure players over the last couple of years or why they couldn't get the offensive talent to surround Tom Brady last year and even this year with Cam Newton? So we got to wait and see how this all unfolds. I understand he wants to cry wolf now because they're 2-5 and five and that's the reason. But I'm really surprised that he came out and said that. That to me was so un-Belichick like that It didn't really make any sense. You want to tell me week 15, 16, 17 when you're out of it, well, hey, this is what we were up against. I would accept that. I would still be like, oh, come on. Nobody wants to hear this after winning three Super Bowls in the last five, six years. But all right, they're not going to make it this year. Fine. What happens if the Patriots do go on a run and they make it as a seven seed and they're eight and eight or nine, seven, then what? Yeah, to me, I don't know. I just found that to be, the timing of that was just very surprising. And then quickly, when we look at the standings, the NFC is by far, think about this. You don't have one team in the conference that has seven wins. You have Seattle at six and two. You have New Orleans at six and two. Tampa six and three. Green Bay six and two. Forget about the Eagles. They're ahead in the division, but we all know they're three, four, and one. So you're going to have this race to 12 and four, and chances are 12 and four will probably be the record for whomever the one seed will be unless one of these teams has run the table and chances are that's not going to happen. So who knows what kind of mess the NFC is going to be because after that, you're looking at Chicago. You're also looking at Arizona, the Rams, as far as making it into the postseason. So there's going to be a Royal Rumble as to who's going to get those final few spots there in the NFC. But I just find the Division leaders in the North, South, and West. And you have to throw the Buccaneers in there, although they're going to lose the tiebreaker to New Orleans as they swept them. But that is going to be a free-for-all as to who's going to get the one seed. Whereas in the AFC, you have three teams that have more than seven wins and two teams that actually have eight wins in both the Chiefs and Steelers. Buffalo, as we mentioned earlier, seven and two. And then you have that mix of Baltimore who are on that second rung right now but could certainly be a contender on their best day. We're going to find more about the Dolphins as we move along, especially with Tua. We don't know what the Colts are going to be. That game Thursday night is going to be a litmus test for them to see what they're going to do throughout the rest of this year. Even the Raiders, 5-3, and three, right now have been playing well. You want to throw in the Browns, 5-3. and three. They had a bye this past week, and with Baker Mayfield on the COVID list, who knows if he's going to play this coming week as they host the Texans. You have a lot of intriguing subplots, storylines as we put the first half of the season to bed and now we look ahead to 
the next eight games and see where the chips may fall as we continue to monitor week in, week out here on the podcast. And now to go from the pro circuit to the college circuit in football, I'm sure you were perturbed and were waiting with bated breath for the end of that Clemson-Notre Dame game because all I wanted to see was Dave Chappelle on Saturday Night Live. I'll admit it. And I tuned into this game late. I was out throughout the course of the day. It was 75 degrees in New York this weekend. And it's November. So I'm going to be out and about. I know that Clemson-Notre Dame game was a not only a phenomenal game, but it was monumental from the standpoint. One versus four. No Trevor Lawrence. Oh, you get all that. But as I got home and I was able or ready to watch Saturday Night Live and this game was unfolding and then I had to look back and watch all the highlights. First off, this was a game that Notre Dame was in control pretty much in the first half. They led 23-10 late in the first half until the Tigers kicked a field goal there to cut it to seven. And then the second half, especially late third quarter into the fourth, it was just back and forth, the type of game you want to see, lead changes, ties, all of that. But to me, the key point in the game, when you look at the final few minutes at 33-26 where Clemson was up and they just got the ball after Notre Dame turned it over on downs, Clemson couldn't salt the game away. They went three and out. If they were able to get a first down or two there, the game would have been over. But because of that, Notre Dame was able to get the ball back. And then the big play was Ian Book to Avery Davis, 53 yards that set him up at the goal line there, first and goal at the four. And then three plays later, they get the touchdown to Davis with 22 seconds left. And then that propelled it into the overtime. And we know what happened there. They traded scores. And then Notre Dame gets their score while stopping Clemson there at the end. And I haven't said this on the podcast before, but I'll say it now. I hate the college overtime. I wish they could change that. Why not start it on the 25-yard line as opposed to the 40? Why not do that? To me, it just cheapens the game. I understand it's college. They're college kids. These aren't professional. Uh, We could talk about that till we're blue in the face. But to me, it just compromises the integrity of the sport. Because wouldn't you like to have seen Clemson start from their 25-yard line to go all the way down the field to whether kick a field goal or get a touchdown and then for Notre Dame to do the same? To me, it's only fair. It's not as if we're asking them to do it several times or they're still young college kids. They're still strong. Nobody's going to confuse these guys with uh, somebody who's never played sports in their life. So I wish they could change that because it would have been that much more thrilling. You would have had that much more drama. But whenever you see the ball there, the 40-yard line, it's a layup. You know, two plays are in field goal range, and then next thing you know, they're in the end zone. And to me, it just cheapens the sport. So I wish there could be something down the road for them to change that. Because the game was... Had a classic finish, especially in regulation. But the overtime, eh, it, to me, it's almost anticlimactic because you kind of know that once this team scores and the other team scores, okay, now who's going to outdo the other? And if they started deep in their own territory, to me, there would be more chances taken by the offense. Maybe they'd be a little bit more conservative where you're in the 40-yard line, one pass, and you're already within scoring range. So that's how I look at it, but... A big game there for Notre Dame. They move up in the rankings to number two where Clemson drops down to number four. By any means, this does not knock out Clemson as far as the playoff four. I think they could lose another game and they'll still make it, but I don't think that's going to be the case 
Trevor Lawrence will probably come back. I believe they have a bye this week, but they'll come back the following week, and you would think they're going to be clicking on all cylinders. So Clemson will definitely be heard from before this is all said and done. And Notre Dame, give it up. Just a big performance in their building. I still need to see a little bit more. I would like to see them go up against Clemson, and we may actually see that in the college football playoff, which I think will be a different result. No offense to my guy, John Irving, who's a huge Notre Dame fan. But they're stepping up in class when they play against the likes of, and not to knock the backup, who had a very good game, but still, I need to see Notre Dame play against the likes of Clemson or Alabama at full bore. Then I can monitor and then be for sure if this Notre Dame team is for real. That's not to discount what they've done to this point. And it's not to say that they're not worthy of being in the top four or a contender. But I still need to see more. Whereas with the Gators, Georgia jumps on them 14-0 before you could blink an eye, barely four minutes into the game. And then if it wasn't for a pick six, Florida would have had 41 unanswered points on the Bulldogs in their building. Which goes to show you that Georgia, for whatever the reason, came out like gangbusters and then just had their tails in between their legs before halftime. So just goes to show you how Georgia, for whatever the reason, they were outclassed, outperformed, and Florida, just look at the quarterback and what he did. And that's pretty much the difference in the game when you look at what Stetson Bennett did. What was he, 5 for 16 with an intercept? He was terrible. And then Kyle Trask of Florida, who was only 30 for 43 for 474 yards and four touchdowns. He did throw a pick, but geez, he made it look easy. It was almost at 14 nothing. Florida didn't even flinch. And then what about the Wolverines again? Now, Indiana, give them credit. They've had some big wins so far this year, as we've seen. But Michigan goes into Indiana, and they never trailed in the game. The Hoosiers. 38-21, Michigan reeling, Indiana flying high to the point where they're now in the top 10. You would think if we're talking about Indiana collegiate sports, we're talking about the basketball team, not the football team. And now the Pac-12 is part of the college football season. Oregon up to their old tricks as they romped in their victory over Stanford. But the big story was USC and their comeback against Arizona in a game where they started at 9 a.m. local time out in Los Angeles and came back from a 13-point deficit, two TDs in the final three minutes, including a fourth and 13, down 27-14, which led to a touchdown on that play, which would have ended the game. And then they recover an onside kick, complete another fourth and long for a touchdown to ice the game. Uh, Geez, I know Herm Edwards, the coach of Arizona State, he probably hasn't slept since the conclusion of that game. I mean, that was one they just gift-wrapped and handed to the USC Trojans. So, Pac-12, back in the mix. Short seasons for everybody. And just a few more weeks before we get to conference championships. Now, I know a lot of it is not until we get into December. Because obviously everything has been pushed up due to COVID. But with that being said, at least you had a college football weekend that you could look at and say, hey, the big game there, Saturday night. You could look at what Florida did to Georgia. Michigan again. Falls by the wayside. Pac-12 with what USC did. Finally, you got a weekend that you could jump up and down for. 
and say, yes, college football is finally back. Now we know about Wisconsin, talking about the Big Ten. They haven't played a game due to COVID, and we talked about this at the top of the NFL. Same thing for college. They're going to keep plowing through. Now how they're going to make up these games, who knows? But when you had your quarterback there who had that phenomenal first game a couple of weeks back, Graham Mertz and their coach and a ton of players, and they haven't even stepped on the field since then, Makes you wonder what that Big Ten championship is going to look like in a few weeks. And as we look at the schedule next week, I took a look at it before. Well, the standings or the rankings, we talked about the top four. Texas A&M is fifth, followed by Florida, Cincinnati, BYU, Miami, and Indiana. So those are your top ten. And again, unless you get Clemson to lose again, or just some sort of craziness over the last few weeks where the Cincinnati's, the BYU's, the Texas A&M's move up in the rankings and one of those top four just and fall apart here over the last month. I cannot see those teams at the bottom 10 of the top 10 moving up to anywhere close to the top four. And the schedule for next week, like I said, there weren't any games I think of notes. You want to say Alabama, LSU. Now LSU we know is a shell of what they were last year. So I can't expect... Now, LSU will be up for the game, you would think. Now, we know their defense is atrocious. Their offense, they could put up some points, but I don't think they're going to be able to slow down Alabama, even if the game is in the bayou. But that's one game I know a lot of people are going to look at. Well, hey, what about that one? Uh, to me, I don't see it. But your games for this coming week, Indiana's going to Michigan State. Now, remember, Michigan State beat Michigan a few weeks ago. Let's see if they could pull off another upset and beat Indiana here. But when we look through, yeah, nothing really to go crazy about. Now looking at Ohio State of Maryland, Notre Dame's at Boston College, Texas A&M, Tennessee. I know a lot of the talk there Saturday night was a number one team losing in South Bend the way Florida State did in 1993. If you remember, that was Charlie Ward, his Heisman Trophy year, where Notre Dame upset the Seminoles at that time. And then the following week, they lost to Glenn Foley. Remember him, Jet fans? And Boston College, as they went into South Bend and beat them on a last-second field goal, well, this time they're going to go to Boston College. So you only hope that history doesn't repeat itself if you're a Fighting Irish fan. So something to keep in mind, although Boston College, we know that they're uh, probably going to be in the game for about five minutes before they fall apart. But, but that's what you have there. Wisconsin, actually, we'll see if they're going to play this week against Michigan. They're back on the schedule against the Wolverines. So... With a couple weeks off, let's see if that's going to be enough to take their talents to Ann Arbor and try to get themselves in a win column against a team that's desperate to get a win for Jim Harbaugh. All right, I want to get to three quick things before I get to my experience Saturday when the word came out as far as Joe Biden being the president-elect of our nation. And then I'll get to my hero in zero of the week. I want to start with the Masters real quick. Now, the early weather reports show that there's going to be a lot of rain heading that way, not only the next couple of days, but Thursday, the start of the tournament through the weekend, to the tune where it's 80% thunderstorms on Thursday, 40% thunderstorms on Friday, and then 30 and 40% rain for Saturday and Sunday. And two things to remember here. One is that we all know the Masters usually takes place in April where we see the blooming azaleas, all the flowers, the greenery, as beautiful as a spring setting that you could possibly have for a golf tournament, but we're in November. 
So obviously we're not going to see that. And then with all the rain, who knows if they're going to be able to get any of these rounds in throughout the course of the weekend. That's number one. But then the second thing, and most importantly, remember, it gets dark early. Where in the spring, you get those days where it's going to be dark around 7.30. What is that, second week of April? So yeah, you may get darkness somewhere between 7.15, 7.30. Now you're talking 5 o'clock. Maybe because it's inland a little bit, it may be 5.15. But they got to get these guys in and off the golf course as quick, as fast, and as much of a hurry as possible. So if you're going to have rain that's going to decimate and just put a damper, not only on the tournament, but on the golf course, how are you going to get these games in when it starts getting dark around 4.45? I don't even know what that's going to be like when you think about it. Because they're going to be up against it, the officials, the just the tour overall. You're probably going to have to start the tournament, then stop. Who knows? I mean, this could be a tournament where they may have to actually play this into sometime next week, which is really going to just put a dark cloud, excuse the pun, over this event. But I get there's nothing you could do about it. If Mother Nature's involved, you're at the mercy of her. So we're going to see how this all unfolds here. I hope they get this in by Sunday. With everything that I mentioned, I don't know how they're going to do it. Maybe... The weather gods show some mercy toward the back end of the weekend. Who knows? But the big story coming into this tournament is Bryson DeChambeau. And we know all of his exploits this year. The bulking of 40 pounds. His mentality is to grip it and rip it. He likes to hit the ball, like I say, you know, 400 yards off the tee. Which isn't much of an exaggeration. But we're going to see how this course plays. And with the weather factoring in on whether or not he could get this. Grand Slam tournament under his belt. We know Tiger is the defending champion right now. But I would think if DeChambeau were to get this in his back pocket, I believe right now he's ranked fifth in the world. Chances are he's going to be number one. And right now it's Dustin Johnson who's coming off a case of COVID. I know there was a golf tournament over the weekend which he performed that I didn't really follow it closely. It was a minor tournament. You know, I'm going to follow the major tournaments full steam. But when this one starts on Thursday... I'll be all into it. I get it's going to have such a different feel, similar to the NBA where we crowned the champion in October, where now you're going to crown a master's champion in the green jacket in November. Now the weather, the temperature is going to be nice. It's going to be the mid to upper 70s, but the rain is just going to be the probably the big story of this weekend if what the weather report says is true as of right now, Monday morning. Now, the other guys on the field, whether your name is Lee Westwood, Ricky Fowler, especially those guys who have not won a championship or a Grand Slam, those are always going to be the guys in the mix, the Roy McIlroy's of the world. Who knows what Tiger and what he's going to do to defend his championship from last year. Also, when you look at Sergio Garcia, who is a former Masters champion, he's going to step down due to COVID. So it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out here. And who knows? I could be on the podcast next Monday recapping everything in sports and who knows we may be into round two of the tournament come uh, Monday at this time so we'll certainly keep our eyes on that the second thing with baseball real quick now the Mets have cleaned house as Steve Cohen is now 100% and I underline officially the owner of the New York Mets sent Brody Van Wagenen packing Omar Minaya packing Allard Baird packing everybody you can imagine in that front office gone except for John Ricco I believe he's the only person that's left standing But now where do the Mets go for GM? 
And some names have been thrown around. I heard Jeff Lunau's name. He's the former Astro GM. And we all know he's tainted right now. If I am Steve Cohen, he's the last person I'm going to hire. You cannot start your regime with a guy who is going to be forever linked to that 2017 Astro team. I don't care how much he knows about analytics. I don't care how much he knows about drafting. He may be the smartest man in baseball that we don't even know of, but you cannot hire that guy on your team. Cannot. But if you want to go elsewhere, I know there are a couple of names, especially in Cleveland, when we're looking at Chris Antonetti, also Mike Chernoff, who's a guy who's known locally here in the sports radio circles as his dad is the program director of WFAN, the sports talk show radio program here in New York. And the Indians, as we've known and seen over the last few years, have been able to build a competitive team. They haven't won the big one, but at the same time, maybe they're able to bring a guy like him East to be the GM of this organization under Sandy Alderson and of course the owner, Steve Cohen. There may be also a possibility where you could have David Stearns, who is the Milwaukee GM, who is a lifelong Met fan. There have been rumors about him being plucked in the past prior to Brody Van Wagenen being the GM of the Mets. I would actually like him, but that looks like it's going to be next to impossible as the Brewers are looking to try to rebuild off of a pretty bad year when they made the postseason the prior two years before that. If you're going to bring guys like that in, I'm all for it. Lunau, uh uh-uh, keep him aside. And if you're going to pluck some young guy, whether he's from the Tampa Bay Rays organization or even the Dodgers, there's even maybe possibility of Theo Epstein, which, would I want to bring Epstein to New York? Listen, a guy won in Boston and Chicago, two places that hadn't won in forever. Maybe he could take some of his pixie dust and spread it all over City Field. He's going to cost a lot. But with Steve Cohen, that's not going to matter. So, going to be some names thrown around. And as far as the manager goes... I don't think Luis Rojas is going to be part of the equation as far as being the manager of this team. But if you're looking for a manager, is the ownership going to go in the direction of the old school manager, a la Mike Sosha, Buck Showalter, that ilk? Or is it going to go the young route, the guy that they could pretty much attach the puppet strings to when it comes to analytics and all the sabermetrics and numbers of the game where they could groom into the job and hopefully build with this core that they have in regards to their pitching, some of their younger players, which they need to sign, by the way, a la the Michael Confortos of the world. Which direction they go, I don't know. Me, personally, why not Buck Walter? He's a guy that is a respectable baseball man. I understand he's not young. He's been out of baseball in the last couple of years. It's not as if he hasn't been in baseball, a la Tony La Russa, for the last nine years. Now, we know La Russa's been part of several teams as a consultant and has had his ties in baseball ever since his last managerial job before getting the job here with the White Sox. But Walter still has a pulse of what's going on. I think it would be a good fit. I don't think that's the direction they're going to go. I think they're going to go with a more cheaper and a more inexperienced manager. But we'll have to wait and see. And from also what I've heard, Cohen is a guy that is not going to go crazy here spending a ton of money. He's not going to be a guy that's going to Look at this organization as his shiny new toy to show it off to all his friends. He's going to go about this not of the route of being reckless and not of the route of being irresponsible. He's going to want to do this the right way, which is a good thing because the last thing you want is for him to give long-term contracts to guys that are either long in the tooth or past their prime and then you're stuck with these guys. I don't care how much money he makes and how much they're over the 
luxury tax. But me personally as a fan, and what I've read and heard, I'm glad that he's going to go that route as opposed to just spending like a drunken sailor. Quickly on Francisco Lindor, he's going to be on the trading block before spring training. I'm sure they're going to entertain whatever offers. Would it be nice for him to be on the Mets? If they could swing the deal, fine. But remember, they're going to have to sign him long term. I get it that Steve Cohen's going to be able to afford him. That's great. And you know what? If you're the Mets, if you could do it, by all means. He's a young player. He's an all-star player. Obviously, if he's going to play shortstop, Rosario's going to be part of that trade, which is fine. Because if you have a working brain cell, you will trade Lindor for Rosario. I'll drive Rosario. And I got nothing against him. I like him. I'll drive him to Cleveland to bring back Lindor. But obviously, you're going to have to give up a lot. I know the Yankees, there may be talks about him going there, which they're going to have to give up a lot too. So the Lindor sweepstakes is open. Let's see what team is going to put forth the highest bid to procure the services of the Indian shortstop who is in the last year of his deal and will have to re-sign him at a hefty price, if not before the season, but certainly after. But obviously you want to do it before because once he gets to free agency, chances are he's going to be gone. So that's the deal there with Lindor. That's number two. And then the third thing with the NBA real quick. Now the players are proposed to start their season December 22nd, which is going to help the NBA from losing a billion dollars if they were to start in mid-January around Martin Luther King holiday. So I'm sure they're going to lose some money with the December 22nd start, but because of a 72-game season, which they want to end, I believe, a week to 10 days before the Olympics, So it gives the opportunity for the NBA player to participate, whether it's here in the U.S. or some of the foreign players to represent their countries. They know that if they're able to start on the 22nd, not only do they want to finish before the Olympics, but the main thing is they want to start their season on time next year, hoping that in October of 2021, the buildings will be filled to capacity with fans, with a treatment, with a vaccine, whatever it may be, And who knows what's going to happen here in the short term with fans being in the buildings. You would think that's not going to be the case, but the NBA knows that they need to have their season start off the 22nd, which I get some players look at that like, oh, geez, you know, now we got to start it up again for those who've been in the bubble, especially the teams that have been there the longest, whether you're the Lakers, the Miami Heat, the Celtics, also the Denver Nuggets to name those teams in particular. But you also got to remember, there were a lot of teams that haven't played since March. So if you're the Knicks, if you're Golden State, those two teams in particular, and a bunch of other teams who didn't play Detroit Pistons, they haven't played since March. So for them to start in December, I'm sure they're going to be chomping at the bit ready to go. So I think it's fair enough. Now you have the NBA who opens their season just three days prior to Christmas, where we all know the Christmas Day NBA extravaganza, which they have set up every year, is going to be interfered by the NFL between 4.30 and 7.30 between the Vikings and Saints, but I'm sure they're going to try to put the 2.30 to 5 and the 5 to 8.30 time slots for the NBA. They're going to put the marquee matchup. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see maybe Celtics Heat 3 to 5.30 and then 5.30 to 8 is going to be Lakers Clippers. Because the NBA, although it's probably not going to work, but they're going to need to put forth their best games to go up against the NFL at that time to draw some eyeballs to watch the association as opposed to watching the Shield. 
So we'll see how that shakes down. And then you have the NBA draft, which is a week from tomorrow. And we'll get into more of that next week. So with the draft on the 18th, and then you figure free agency of some sort will happen in the coming days after that because they're going to have to get rosters set prior to December 22nd and a preseason. I'm sure there are not going to be any preseason games to cut down on travel, COVID, etc. But a training camp is going to have to start pretty soon, and you would think it'd be sometime after Thanksgiving. And when you think about it, the Monday after Thanksgiving is November 30th. So between the 30th and the 22nd to have any sort of training camp, they're going to have to skedaddle and get on the ball when it comes to this. So NBA certainly has their work cut out for them to not only start the season on that scheduled date, but to get the schedule up, to get it off and running, to get all the players together. So they certainly have a lot to look forward to here in these coming weeks. And with the NHL, we don't even know when their season is going to start. So we know there's no winter classic. Is there a date on the horizon? Gary Bettman hasn't said anything. So as of right now, as we're approaching mid-November, we have nothing as of yet to discuss as far as an NHL season. So stay tuned for that. Now lastly, before I get to my Hero and Zero of the Week, I feel it'd be irresponsible for me not to bring this up. But living in New York, and I get that I live in a Democratic state, and I'm going to preface it by saying this. I am not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican. And I've... Don't come from a household that is staunch either way. To me, it's about right and wrong, or to me, what I feel is right and wrong. But what I experienced Saturday, not only on a freakish 72 to 75 degree day in New York City, but to see the joy, the relief, and just the boundless energy in various pockets throughout the city of the news that Joe Biden is going to be the president of this country. To me, in experiencing that, that's what America should be. Now, I'm not talking about candidates. I'm not talking about, I'm just talking about the unity of people and even the humanity of what this country should be about and has not been about, especially over the last four years. To go to various street corners and just see people clapping and cheering. And we understand why, and I'm not going to get into all that right now, but just to see the relief. It was almost as if there was a big giant exhale in this country. Now, I understand there's a faction that doesn't feel that way and believe that way, and that's their right. I understand. But at the same time, to be able to see people clapping, see people cheering, and there were pockets of people. I understand you're going to talk about COVID and all people shouldn't be gathered. All right, fine. But a lot of people here, especially in New York, they're wearing masks and they're doing their best to social distance. But when you hear music and it's festive and it's jubilant and cars that are honking and American flags that are out, to me, that's the America that I felt that once upon a time I knew and I loved. And as a society, people have come apart at the scenes and fallen so far from that that they've lost the grip and also the sight to say, hey, we're better than this. So with that news coming down and with the excitement, and not only just here in New York, you saw it everywhere else in all the big cities. And we understand middle America does not care about New York, D.C., Philadelphia, Atlanta, Los Angeles, understood. But if you can't look at the pictures of just people clapping, dancing, cheering, and just unite then do you have a pulse? You got to look at it from that perspective. Because we've lost our way, not only as people, 
not only as a society, but as citizens in this country. And I feel by seeing that on Saturday was a step, hopefully in the right direction, for people to believe what they want to believe and feel what they want to feel, whether it's validated or not, but is to look after our fellow citizens, our fellow Americans, to look at them and say, yeah, we could disagree and I may not believe or agree with where you come from, but at the same time, if there's a crisis, and God forbid that's the case, a la 9-11, that we can, as Americans, rally around one another and not be so divided. So hopefully what we saw Saturday and now in the days to come, and we know that this is going to be the biggest emotional, psychological, spiritual tug of war with everything that's going to transpire between now and the end of January. But at least as of just a couple of days ago and even right now, we are able to breathe a little bit. And that's all I'll say about that. Now to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week, I'm going to give it to Dustin Pedroia. And I know this is old news. This kind of flew under the radar, but he was a 2008 MVP in the American League, three-time champion, second baseman of the Red Sox, pretty much the last link to their big title teams in 07 and 13 and 18. I know there's some players there from 2018, but to go back that far, he and... David Ortiz were pretty much the last links to that. He steps down, calls it a career. We know about that knee injury that has hobbled him over the last few years. But he was the heart and soul of that team if Big Poppy was the blood and guts. And he was also heart and soul too. But Dustin Bajoria wasn't that far off. He was maybe 1A when it comes to being the face of the Red Sox for all those years. Well, he goes off into retirement. Kudos to him on a very good career, a championship career, big heart. Small stature. We know the deal when it comes to Dustin Pedroia. He is my hero of the week. And my zero of the week, again, I'm not the morality police people, but the students and fans of Notre Dame for flooding that field. You would think Notre Dame was Columbia University. They just stormed that field, and you've seen the pictures at the end of that game. And I'm surprised that there weren't security around there. I get that they're allowing fans into the building, but I'm surprised that they don't have those first 10 rows sectioned off to where you have security guards. And right, if you're one security guard, are you going to stop hundreds of kids from going onto the field? I understand that. But have a tarp, have something. Maybe I should give the zero to the security staff and just to Notre Dame overall for not having that blocked off because that was just an out-and-out disgrace and just a terrible optic for everything that's going on in this country and the cases spiking and so on and so forth, no matter where you may come from. To me, it's not left, right, up, down, backwards. No, it's about what's right and wrong. And to me, just seeing that was a sight for sore eyes. So I'll just put this on Notre Dame and their staff, security, the university on a whole. You are my zero of the week. And I'll do it for episode 163. I appreciate you guys very much for listening to what it is I have to say about what's happening in the world of sports. And as I said at the top, and I'll say it now just to remind you, if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, Amazon Music. All that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there. As you well know, there are just tons of podcasts, not even just sports, but all other types of podcasts for you to listen to. And the reason why I want you to do that because it'll also generate some interest with those outside who is not familiar with myself or the J Reels podcast. So that goes to the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, sports writer, blogger, studio host, 
to try to get them on to share their experiences with me so I could share that with you. Hopefully twice a week. I know I haven't had a guest in a while, although I do have a couple things brewing, but I don't want to tip my hand just yet. So please stay tuned for that. And by staying tuned, you could check the website at jreels.com for more info on future guests or upcoming shows. And also on my social media accounts, whether it's on Instagram at jreels or the jreels podcast. On Twitter, jreels1, just a number. On Facebook, the jreels podcast. Or if you want to send me an email or hit me up in a DM on any of those aforementioned sites, you could do so at the JReels Podcast at gmail.com. As I've said time and time again, people, sports has been in the blood since day one. And I could talk about it till I'm blue in the face. As you may or may not know, I love to delve into everything that's happening in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are. The J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>